U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined, as always, by my XO, Steven. Ahoy there. We're going to be picking up where we last left off, our general coverage of the conflict of 1812. So, the British government needed American food for its army in Spain, which they also benefited from the willingness of the New Englanders to trade with them, which is why there was no blockade of New England when everything first started off. British Empire, sun never sets on it. They couldn't be getting their uh, produce and grain from other colonies? Oh, I'm sure they did, but not in the amount that they were getting from the U.S. Hmm, okay. We were such a breadbasket that we were able to, you know, feed literally nations. The whole fertile land thing? Gotcha. Okay. Plus, one of the only areas that weren't in eternal conflict at the time? Yeah, you know, that's an excellent point. Napoleonic Wars are still going on. Which is why they needed the food stuff in Spain. <laughs> exactly. So the Delaware River and Chesapeake Bay were declared blockaded December 26th. Although illicit trade was continually carried on by collusive captures arranged between American traders and British officers. American ships were fraudulently transferred to neutral flags and then the U.S. government was eventually driven to issue orders to stop this illegal trading, which, you know, put a further strain on the commerce of the new country. So they were doing the uh, 19th century equivalent of using a VPN in order to uh, trade with the British. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Flag changing. I never before working with you would have assumed it was so diverse in its applications. Yeah, it's very good for tricking the enemy so you can get up close and also tricking your own country. Getting around economic sanctions. Now, the strength of the British fleet allowed it to occupy Chesapeake and also to attack and destroy numerous docks and harbors. And also the blockade of American ports tightened to the extent that most merchant ships and Navy vessels couldn't leave port. The frigates United States and Macedonia ended the war blockaded and stayed in London, Connecticut. For the entire length of the war, they, they never were able to get out to sea. Once the blockade started there. Ah, okay. They finished the war at port. Now, some of the merchant ships were based in Europe or Asia. They continued operating. Others, mostly from New England, were issued licenses to trade by the Admiral Sir John Borlase Warren, who was Commander-in-Chief of the American Station in 1813, which also allowed Wellington's army in Spain to receive American goods and to maintain New England's opposition to the war. Now, the blockade resulted in exports decreasing from 130 million in 1807 to 7 million in 1814. Whoa! Oh my goodness, that is... Huge. 
maybe 6% off the top of my head of what your uh, gross export was previously? My goodness. It's crippling. Yeah. Um, how the hell was the U.S. government paying for anything? The government was mostly getting tariffs for money. Right, that, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, I imagine if the exports decreased that much, the imports had to be doing just as bad. Oh, yeah. Right, so was it just a bunch of IOUs like back in the Revolution days? Give us a pass this time, and we'll make it worth your while. <laughs> now, ironically, most of these exports were food. Where do you think they went? Well, um... I'm going to go out on a limb and assume mo they're mostly coming from New England and mostly going to Spain to help the Duke of Wellington. This food stuff went to British enemies. <laughs> they was used to supply Britain's enemies. Okay, that, that's kind of funny. So primarily France. Oh, us too. Oh, okay. And Canada. So Halifax operated as the Royal Navy base that supervised the blockade. They profited greatly from the war. From that base, the privateers on the British side seized a lot of French and American ships and sold it to Halifax. Oh, I never thought about that. So if you're a privateer, you know, not only can you hold on to the goods to sell yourself, you could just sell to the government that's employing you. Probably for a decent markup, since you're acquiring it for nothing down. Just as long as you didn't lose any lives. Oh, pff, sailors are cheap and replaceable. Which is one of the reasons why this conflict isn't going anyway. <laughs> now, the British fleet that was blockading Chesapeake Bay were based at Bermuda. They received increasing numbers of enslaved black Americans during 1813. They were welcomed by Royal Navy officers holding anti-slavery sentiments and, by British government order, were treated as free persons when reaching British hands. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, that would be a good thing, I'd imagine, actually, because uh, I'm not sure across all the colonies, but the UK at least outlawed slavery... I think before 1810. Yeah, no, this was one of the few things that the British government did good. During this conflict? Up until, you know, this time in history, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah every, every government has uh, a lot of skeletons in the closets of history. But this is a good thing that they did. I will applaud yeah. the British government for this. In 1814, the next year, the British government changed from a policy of passively accepting these refugees to actively encouraging slaves to immigrate. It was not perfect, but it was implemented by Admiral Alexander Cochrane's proclamation of April 2nd, 1814. It offered freedom to slaves reaching British lines or ships. It was similar to the Crown's offers of freedom to slaves during the Revolutionary War. Pretty much, if you can reach us and you're willing to switch sides, we are happy to give you your freedom. Exactly. I'm sure southern states had a few things to say about that. They always do. We'll be getting into that conflict. In, in due time. In due time. <laughs> yeah. No, no reason to get to the 
incredibly depressing part just yet. Right. That's still about 45 years out. Thousands of enslaved Americans went over to the British with their families during the two years from March 1813, a migration known as the Black Refugees. Then from May 1814, younger men volunteered and were recruited into a new corps of colonial marines, initially based on occupied Tangier Island in the Chesapeake. Now, these corps companies joined a lot of different companies of Royal Marines in September and became part of the 3rd Battalion Royal and Colonial Marines. Now, these Colonial Marines compared to Royal Marines, just a name difference, or were they taking that moniker because they have gained a lot of experience fighting in North America? Just because they were identifying them from the colonies. Okay. So they earned a lot of praise from their commanders. These freed men fought for Britain all across the Atlantic campaign, including the Battle of Bladensburg. They're the ones that attacked Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. Now, they also had garrison service in the new Royal Navy dockyard at Bermuda after the conflict. Then these guys settled in Trinidad in August of 1816. Now, 700 of these ex-Marines now were given land and organized villages, according to their military companies, in the area that has been since known as the Company Villages. Also, a small number of other freed Americans were recruited into the 2nd West India Regiment. Of these men, the British settled most with their families in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Well, of those that did not enlist. In 1815, the British resettled 200 black American slaves from the Gulf of Mexico area over to Trinidad. I can't say I'm familiar with that location. Is that uh, another Caribbean island? Trinidad is the larger and more populous of two major islands, the other being Tobago. They lie six to seven miles off the northeastern coast of Venezuela, which, you know, is on the continental shelf of South America. Right. Huh. Well, today I learned where a certain island is. So back then, Maine was part of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. It was a base for smuggling and illegal trade between the U.S. and the British. Until 1813, this region was really just quiet, except for privateer actions near the coast. Now, in September, there was a big naval battle when the Enterprise fought and captured the Royal Navy brig Boxer off Permaquid Point. Now, the first British assault in this area came in July when Sir Thomas Masterman... What a name. That is well done. I think you win this conflict just for best last name. Well, his last name's Hardy, but that's a wonderful middle name. I mean, he probably just introduced himself as Masterman. I would. Tell me a story, Papa. All right. I will tell you about Masterman 
and how he beat the crap out of those Yankees. Yay! Yep, he took Moose Island. And he did it without firing a shot. I Did, did he go to the island and sway the mooses to uh, the British cause? He probably just shouted from the ship, I am Sir Thomas Masterman. Surrender to me. And then the entire garrison at Fort Sullivan surrendered. <laughs> All right, well, we found the British Captain Britain of 1812, I guess. I like this guy. So Sir John Cope Sherbrooke in September of 1814 from his base in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He led 3,000 of his troops in the Pebscot expedition. In 26 days, he raided and looted Hampton, Bangor, and Machias, destroying or capturing 17 American ships. He won the Battle of Hampton, he lost two guys and killed one American. You know what? I think we can still call that a win for him. Losing two sailors and capturing or destroying, did I hear that right, 17 vessels? During this whole expedition. Over 28 days. 26. Okay, so a hair under four weeks. This was still just the first one. Jeez. But it's still, a hair under four weeks, 17 ships, and you only lose two sailors. During, we're, we're just, this is the first battle. Oh, oh, we're still on the first, okay. We're, we're not even on, <laughs> this isn't day one through 26, this is day one. Probably around day five, they still had to get there. <laughs> You're not making his accomplishments sound less impressive. You're kind of making me want to start, you know, grabbing a Union Jack and like, Go UK! Go UK! Well, still only losing three people in one battle, that's still pretty good. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, between... We got Captain Masterman and his Moose Brigade, and now we have a guy who is effectively doing a British equivalent on this to what the Japanese did in Pearl Harbor. If I'm understanding this right, he sailed into port took out a lot of ships in that port? No, this is 17 sh ships during all of these battles together. Okay. Yeah, no, when they left this first one, they only destroyed... They, actually, the retreating American forces destroyed the frigate Adams. Oh, I thought he only lost two guys. He lost a boat, too? We did. Well, now I'm just getting more confused about who lost what. Okay. So, the first one, which is Hampton, three people killed. Two Brits, one American. Right. And lost the frigate Adams. The Americans did? Yes. Okay. And then the British occupied the town of Castine, which is the most eastern, main area, and they kept it for the rest of the war. And then, you know, the Treaty of Ghent returned it back to the U.S. afterwards. Right. Uh, the British left in 1815, and they took 10,750 pounds, which they took as tariff duties. This money was called the Castine Fund, and was used to establish Dalhousie University in Halifax. Well, I guess uh, 
what, what's the school mascot? Bratz, Barbie, or, you know, Masterman? Oh, definitely Masterman. Excellent choice, Dalhousie. Dressed in a Barbie dress. <laughs> of course. Of course, because Masterman is confident enough to pull it off. Now, Chesapeake Bay was a strategic location, which was also near the Americans' capital, so it made it a beautiful target for the British. So in March of 1813, a squadron under Rear Admiral George Cockburn blockaded the bay and started raiding towns along the bay from Norfolk to Havre de Grace. On July 4th of 1813, Joshua Barney, who is a Revolutionary War naval hero, convinced the Navy Department to build the Chesapeake Bay Flotilla, a squadron of 20 barges to defend Chesapeake Bay. Launched in April, the squadron was quickly cornered in the Patuxent River, and they were successful in harassing the Royal Navy. They were really just powerless to stop the British campaign, which led to the burning of Washington. Now, I'm sure we'll go into that series of military maneuvers um, of the Chesapeake Bay squadron versus uh, Cockburn Mm -hmm. at a later episode. But do you think the main problem with that came down to the barges just not being the speediest or most maneuverable compared to proper ships? More than likely. Without having actually looked into it yet, I would say that if the British had normal sloops and frigates and things of that nature and the only thing we had was barges. Yeah, they would be... Effectively a raft with a cannon. It would be a lot less maneuverable. They would not have the armament or the shot capacity to just do much against ships of the line. So this expedition, led by Cockburn and General Robert Ross, was carried out between August 19th and 29th, 10-day period in 1814. And as the result of the hardened British policy of 1814. So as part of this, General Warren had been replaced as commander-in-chief by Alexander Cochrane with reinforcements and orders to force the Americans into a favorable peace. The governor-in-chief of British North America, Sir George Prevost, had written to the admirals in Bermuda calling for retaliation because the Americans sacked York, which is now Toronto. A force of 2,500 soldiers under General Ross had arrived in Bermuda aboard HMS Royal Oak, three other frigates, three sloops, and 10 smaller vessels. They were released from the Peninsula War by British victory, and the British, they intended to use them for diversion raids along the coasts of Maryland and Virginia. But because of Provost, they decided to employ this force together with the Navy and military units already on the station to strike Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's that's a pretty effective attention getter. So the Secretary of War, John Armstrong, he insisted that the British would attack Baltimore rather than Washington. What was he basing that claim on? He was just an idiot. (laughs) Because the British army was 
obviously on its way to the Capitol. Now, they also had an inexperienced American militia congregated at Bladensburg in Maryland to protect the Capitol. But they were routed in the Battle of Bladensburg, opening this route to Washington. On our part, it was just a gross mismanagement, terrible performance, and essentially overthinking everything like, oh, they're bluffing. That's a that's a diversion. The real thing's going to be coming way over there. Yeah, I know they're putting everything here, but that's a diversion. The real force is coming somewhere else. Yeah, the British were able to outsmart these guys. And then the militia that they put in place to protect Washington, D.C., were inexperienced and, you know, ran at the first sign of trouble. So Dolly Madison saved valuables from the presidential mansion, while the president, James Madison, was forced to flee to Virginia. The British commanders, when they got there, they ate the supper that had been prepared for the president before they burned down the presidential mansion. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's... I mean, waste not, want not, for one. Um, so, respect for that. That's just such wonderful shade. It, yeah, it was less waste not, want not, and more, screw you guys. We're taking your stuff. Yeah. Oh, how, how splendid. You had your uh, servants prepare a meal for us. Well, it would be rude of us not to uh, partake before burning your home down. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I would have preferred my steak a little rarer, but adequate. So as you can imagine, morale was reduced to an all-time low. Yeah. The British, these guys viewed their actions as retaliation for destructive American raids into Canada, most notably the burning of York. Now, later, the same evening as this happened, a huge storm swept into D.C., sending a few tornadoes into the city, which caused more damage, but it also extinguished the fires. Yay! Go tornadoes. Yeah, yeah we, we did it, Mother Nature. We saved D.C. By destroying other parts of it. Yeah, what, what's left? The swamp, of course. The naval yards, as I mentioned before, were also set afire. Makes sense. At the direction of U.S. officials. But what? They wanted to prevent the capture of naval ships and supplies. I get that. I'm following you here. Crazy thought. It's the army that's attacking. I'm sure you can round up a skeleton crew to take those ships half a mile away from shore. Here's the thing, though. The British left right after the storm. Folks, you can't see it. I'm face palming. So they destroyed Washington's public buildings, including the president's mansion, the treasury. The British army then moved to capture Baltimore. It was a busy port and a key base for American privateers. And even though Maine was part of Massachusetts, right? Yeah. This was not one that the pro-British smugglers would be using. No, this is an American privateer port. Okay. Um, and to circle back real fast, I often hear an anecdote that uh, 
the commanding officers of the British force actually gave orders to their men not to burn down, um, like, the marine barracks or something, because they felt the marines conducted themselves honorably in a previous engagement or something. Any truth to that, or is that just a feel-good anecdote about military honor? So, it is said that while the 6500 militia retreated, just left, 420 U.S. Marines, which included 120 Marines and 360 sailors, okay, did not receive orders from General Winder to retreat from the battlefield. So this force of 420 stayed and attempted to fight off the entire British army. Outnumbered five to one, at least. In hellish hand-to-hand combat, fists and cutlasses, they made their stand for two hours. That's, that's impressive. These 420 men held the line long enough to allow Congress, the president, his wife, and for them to take many of the White House's most treasured artifacts with them. So, one of the few buildings that were spared was the Commandant of the Marine Corps' house. The reason for this, and this is all legend, is that the British were impressed by the Marines' performance at the Battle of Bladensburg, and thus spared it out of respect. We don't don't know for sure if it's, you know, military honor, mutual respect, or if it was, hey, is that a tornado? Okay, let's book it. Well, some historians do say that it is likely that it was just overlooked in the chaos of an entire city burning. Hmm. So, it is confirmed it didn't burn, but we don't exactly know whether that was intentional or not. Either it's out of respect, or they just missed it. I mean, either way, I'm sure the Commandant was happy. If he survived? If he survived. So, Baltimore? Yeah, Baltimore. So that battle began when the British landed at North Point, which they were met by the American militia. So an exchange of gunfire began, and casualties on both sides. General Ross, he was killed by an American sniper while he was trying to rally his troops. And then, you know, the sniper was killed just a second later. Aw. But the British did withdraw. I mean, yeah, I mean, if the officer in charge of the overall campaign is taken out, that does put a damper on the overall momentum of your engagement. Unless he wasn't liked. I do suppose that would complicate, you know, troops feeling conflicted about staying or withdrawing, yeah. Now, the British, they also attempted to attack Baltimore by sea on the 13th, but they were unable to reduce Fort McHenry to rubble at the entrance of the harbor. I mean, this battle of Fort McHenry was really no battle at all. Now, the British guns, they had a range on the American guns, and they stood out of the U.S. range, and then they bombarded the fort. And, of course, Americans couldn't return fire because they were out of range. They were supposed to coordinate with a land force, but from this distance, coordination was impossible. So the British was like, now we're done. We're leaving. So Baltimore did the lights out thing, where they extinguished all 
the light in the evening. And the British bombarded that fort for 25 hours. The only light that was being given off were the exploding shells over that fort, illuminating the flag that was still flying over the fort. This is where Francis Scott Key wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. None of these actions of the Chesapeake campaign were deemed worthy enough to the British for a British Army Medal clasp. But participants in the attack in Washington were paid prize money by the war office. So they didn't get any medals, but they got cash. And at the end of the day, I think they're happy with that. But I, I am a little surprised that they didn't offer medals because uh, while the Chesapeake campaign off ultimately didn't really do anything in the grand scheme of things, you burned down and completely emptied the opposing nation's capital. I feel like that's worth a shiny piece on your chest. No, the only time the clasps were offered was for Fort Detroit, Chattanooga, and Chrysler's Farm. Okay, I'm not going to pretend that makes any sense at all to me, but I'll just smile and nod. But in addition, prize money arising from the booty captured by the expedition in the River Paduxton at Fort Washington and Alexandra was paid in November 1817. Three companies of Marines received these payments. Do we know how much it was? We do. A first-class share was worth 183 pounds. And that works out to roughly 16,680 pounds and 73 pence in 2021 dollars. Now, a sixth-class share, which was what a ordinary Marine would receive, was worth one pound. No. What? That's... You could get two tanks of gas. 91 pounds and 15 cents. No, there was a second payment in May of 1819. And how much was that? A first-class share, 42 pounds. Okay, that is about 3,828 pounds and 36 pence. Now the ordinary soldier? Don't tell me another pound. Nine pence. <clears throat> Which, that is like eight pounds and change. <laughs> My goodness. Average foot soldiers just get screwed over consistently, don't they? Traditionally. It's tradition. Well, from a terrible Yankee to the ghost of Redcoat's past... Uh, you guys got screwed, I'm sorry. Even now, your basic rank in the military is E1 to E3. These are the majority of your fighting men and women. These are also the lowest paid people in the military. So, it's still going like that nowadays. Well, that's just crazy to me that it's such a low payment for taking out the uh, opposing nation's capital. So, you know, Jefferson said that Canada could easily be overrun. I, I recall that being stated. We just have to march. It's a matter of marching, he said. And many loyalists had migrated to Upper Canada after the Revolutionary War. There was also significant non-loyalist American immigration 
to the area due to land grants for immigrants. And the U.S. assumed that these guys would favor the American cause. But, no, they didn't. I mean, you're literally marching into their home and saying, we're rescuing you from what? So in pre-war Upper Canada, General Provost was in the very unusual position of having to purchase provisions for his troops from the Americans. <laughs> this oops, weird trade persisted, well, throughout the entire war, in spite of the U.S. government trying to stop it. Lower Canada. Listen. Oh, yeah. Listen, I hate you. I hate everything you stand for. But you got money, and I have goods. Let's make this happen. I will pause shooting you in the face just long enough to take your money to give you food. What's target practice if they starve to death? Exactly. I mean, you've got to have to be a challenge. Let them shoot back. Mm-hmm. Keeps your men on their toes. Yeah. Now, in Lower Canada, there was a huge population. It was a, a lot more people there than in Upper Canada. And so support there came from the English elite, which were strongly loyal to the empire, but also from the Canadian elite, who feared that the U.S. would come in and destroy the old order and take, take over everything and introduce Protestantism, Angelization, Republican democracy, and commercial capitalism, while also weakening the Catholic Church. The Canadians feared the loss of a shrinking area of good lands to possible American immigrants. I, I don't have anything to say to that one. Uh, <laughs> but Upper Canada is the, what was, well, is Quebec, and Lower Canada is what is roughly Ontario now, right? Or am I getting that swapped around? So Quebec, modern Quebec is north down to about where Ottawa is. Ottawa's right on the border of Ontario and Quebec, and then Ontario goes a little bit further south and then jumps west. Okay. So I forgot about Ottawa, but Quebec is upper. Ottawa and Ontario are lower Canada. Ottawa is in Ontario, lower Canada. Oh, right. Ottawa's the city. Yes. Ottawa is the city. 1812 to 13. The British military experience was a winning one over the American commanders who were very inexperienced. Mm -hmm. Geography also dictated that operations would have to take place in the West, like near Lake Erie, also near the Niagara River, between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario and also near the St. Lawrence River area and the Lake Champlain. So, do you think a big reason that American commanders were struggling is, with the exception of skirmishes with Native American tribes, this was their first taste of real war since the Revolution, and all of those folks were out of the military game at that point? This is exactly why. Because the Navy has been able to cut its chops on, you know, pirates in the Mediterranean Sea, French privateers in the Caribbean, so 
and, and that was less than a decade and change back, so they've gotten their practice in, they've worked out the kinks. Correct. The Navy and Marines, they were getting all the combat experience. The Army was their experiences with the Native American peoples. Going up against a, in that time, modern technological military was something completely different. Right. Dealing with natives was guerrilla tactics and raids, whereas this was, you know, you have to actually think about grand strategy, you know, defensive formations, feigned attacks. Yeah, a lot of that, plus the weaponry itself with the Native Americans. You had bows and arrows, tomahawks, a lot of hand-in-hand, hand-to-hand fighting. If they had muskets, it was you know, acquired either through British suppliers or other traders, but not every tribe, and if the tribe had them, not every member of the tribe had muskets, most likely. Right. And another contention for this war is because the British kept arming the Native Americans. So because of the geography, the focus was a three-prong attack by the Americans in 1812. They were trying to cut the St. Lawrence River through the capture of Montreal and Quebec, which would have made Britain's hold in North America unsustainable. The U.S. began operations on the western frontier because of the general popularity of a war with the British, who had sold arms, again, to the Native Americans opposing these people. Now, the British scored an important early success when their detachment at St. Joseph Island on Lake Huron learned of the war declaration before the American garrison at the trading post at Manitak Island in Michigan. So a small force landed on the island July 17th and mounted a gun overlooking that fort. The British fired one shot from this gun, and then the Americans were completely surprised and surrendered. And this, this early victory encouraged the Native Americans, and large numbers moved to help the British at Amherstburg. This island totally controlled access to the Old Northwest, which gave the British control of this area. But... More vitally, a monopoly on the fur trade. Yep, the Hudson Bay Company was a very, very profitable enterprise for quite some time. Now, an American army under the command of William Hull invaded Canada July 12th. And his forces were mainly composed of untrained and ill-disciplined militiamen. Remember this? What could possibly go wrong? Now, once on Canadian soil, Hall issued a proclamation ordering all British subjects to surrender or, quote, the horrors and calamities of war will stalk before you. Uh, you know, you're doing a really, really bad job of making us look like the good guys here, man. It gets worse. Oh, no. Oh, no. He also threatened to kill any British prisoner caught fighting alongside a Native American. I, I, I sincerely cannot wait to hear the details of his 
self-inflicted demise, frankly. Yeah, this, this proclamation, it helps stiffen the resistance to American attacks. This is why you put points in persuasion and intimidation, folks. If you just go intimidation, it doesn't always work. Yeah, but intimidation is a lot more fun. If you're a murder hobo. No, you just gotta be big. <laughs> you don't have to murder to be intimidating. No, but you, you have to be able to back it up. This... And this guy clearly cannot. Well, he didn't take any artillery, that's for sure. And he was also very badly supplied. He had to fight just to maintain his own lines of communications. So a British... Nay, so a senior British officer in Upper Canada, Major General Isaac Brock, felt that he should take measures to calm the settler population in Canada and also to convince the Aboriginals to defend the region that Britain was strong. So he moved rapidly to Amherstburg with reinforcements and immediately decided to attack Detroit. So Hull, who we already hate, feared that the British possessed superior numbers and that the Indians attached to Brock's force would commit massacres if fighting began. So he surrendered Detroit without a fight. And I'm assuming back then Detroit wasn't as... They didn't quite have the reputation it has now. So that would be a bad move, generally. Elaborate. Oh, I, isn't the running joke with Detroit urban violence the city? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I'm I've never lived in Chica in uh, Michigan, so maybe it's a Wisconsin thing to make fun of Detroit the same way it is we make fun of Illinois. No, Detroit has a stigma of violence and things of that nature. RoboCop, for instance, that's where he was based out of. Right. When I visited Detroit many many times, I've been through there many many times. I didn't see, you know, futuristic killing machines. What do you know? More Hollywood lies. So, knowing, quote-unquote, knowing British instigated indigenous attacks at other locations, Hall ordered the evacuation of all the inhabitants of Fort Dearborn, which was in Chicago, to Fort Wayne. Uh. What authority does he have to be doing this? Like, I understand he's an officer in the military, but, like, the local governing, the civilian government, I should say, the local civilian government, like your mayors, your magistrates, your governors, or lieutenant governors, if it was still a territory, couldn't say, like, hey, you know, everyone, hold up a minute. You're who? From where in the army? Okay, cool. We have never heard of you. And I didn't get any sort of communication from Washington saying that I should be listening to you. Oh, he's not doing anything with the civilians. He evacuated the fort. That's a military property. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was just in Chicago. No, he okay. has no authority to evacuate Chicago to Indiana. Okay, I thought you were saying he said everyone in Chicago... Get out of here. No, just in Fort Dearborn. I just said Chicago because nobody would know where Fort Dearborn was. But everybody knows where Fort Wayne is, so. I'll take Texas for 200. Indiana. Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's a place. <laughs> so, after initially being granted safe passage, the Potawatomis attacked them on August 15th. 
after traveling only two miles in what is known as the Battle of Fort Dearborn. And the fort was burned. Noticing a running theme in this war, burn it down. You are denying the enemy access to anything that they could use against you. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I'm just saying there is a very noticeable uptick in arson compared to what we've seen in the past on this podcast. It happens. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Brock promptly transferred himself to the eastern end of Lake Erie, where General Stephen Van Restenler was attempting a second invasion. An armistice prevented Brock from invading American territory. But when it ended, the Americans attempted an attack across the Niagara River on October 13th and were dealt a crushing defeat at Queenston Heights. Now, Brock was killed during the battle. And while the professionalism of the American forces would have proved by the end of the war, the British leadership suffered immensely after Brock's died. A final attempt in 1812 by General Henry Dearborn to advance north from Lake Chaplin failed when his militia refused to advance beyond American territory. So his militia was like, no, that's Canada, we ain't going. Yeah, I, I recall you saying when we started this whole thing, uh, a big problem because the army was relying a lot on militia troops early on in this war. Yep. Once they were out of their own state, they were like, yeah, not my state, not my problem, man, my man. But you literally volunteered to help with this. Yeah, with my state. Exactly. Exactly. So this is where we're going to leave off for today. Thank you guys for joining us. If you would like to contact us, you can do so at U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Steven, is there anything you would like to say uh, before we go? Yes. Please leave uh, some reviews. Five stars is preferred, but we honestly value your honesty on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to us on. We would love to hear your feedback. And if you'd like, we can even read it on the air. We don't pay for advertising, so word of mouth and your reviews is how we get out there. All right, and while Steven goes and changes out all the batteries in the sound-powered phones, we will see you guys next week. Now, wait, are these Ds? Triple A's? What do you mean I have to go to the shore of Triple A to replace these? U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. (laughs) 